0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, today we're going to be in uh, Colossians chapter 3. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3. We have been uh, in a series which is atypical for us. Normally we're just expositing through a book of the Bible and we will get into the book of Habakkuk in a couple of weeks. But we've taken a little break so that we could think about this subject of work, the theology of work in a series I've called Wholehearted Work, which the title comes from the passage that we're going to actually read uh, today. In our first study, we thought about why work matters. Why does it matter to God? What is good about work? How does God intersect with our workplace? And then in our second study, we thought about why work is hard. Uh, why is it that sometimes the work of our hands it can be frustrating, we feel limited, why is it hard? And uh, today we're gonna think about the subject of how to do good work uh, according to the Bible uh, from this little passage in Colossians chapter three. So if you guys would read along with me in verse 22, we'll read all the way to chapter four, verse one. Paul writing to the Colossian church, he says, bond servants, or some of your Bibles might say slaves, which would be accurate. He said, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In the Old Testament there's a story of a prophet named Elijah. Elijah was really the great prophet in Israel for a number of years. We think of him when we think of all the prophets. And Elijah came to a point in his life and ministry where he was so discouraged, so tired that he was ready to give up. He was spiritually dismayed and eventually God gave him permission. God decided to take Elijah home in a whirlwind of fire. Uh, and to replace Elijah with another prophet with a similar name named Elisha. But Elijah had to recruit Elisha into the work. And so one day, he went to where Elisha was. Elisha was busy farming. He was plowing a field, the Bible says, with a pair or a yoke of oxen. And Elijah came to Elisha and threw his garment onto him, which was a symbol for recruitment in the prophetic era and age. And Elisha responded in the affirmative. He said he'd take the job, but then he did something very interesting. First, he went immediately to his parents, let them know that he was leaving town, that he was retiring from farming so that he could enter into prophetic work. Then he went back to the field and he slaughtered the oxen that he'd been plowing the field with as a sacrifice right there in the midst of the field to God. Then he took the farming equipment, the yoke that he was using, and he built a fire with it and put the oxen on top of it and cooked a barbecue for the whole town. Then he fed the townspeople with the meat, and after they all ate, then He departed. And I wonder, as I talked in our last study about why work is hard, if some of you began to fantasize about quitting your job in the same way, (laughs) abruptly, quickly, I'm out of here, maybe fire and smoke and a blaze of sacrifice before you move on to something else. And I think a lot of people, a lot of Christians especially, have this attitude about the workplace and perhaps even about the world. You know, we're looking forward to getting out of here. And of course, in our Christian hearts, we long for that day where we will see Jesus face to face. But don't we think that the Bible and don't we think that the gospel has something to offer to redeem our experience today? Of course we do. And so the passage of scripture that we're going to look at today, I think, will help us think about how to work well in our modern time. Now, the passage that we read is addressed mostly to a group in the church in Colossae, an ancient church in the first century in Europe, uh, that were enslaved. They're called bond servants or slaves in the passage Uh, He also talks for a moment in verse 1 of chapter 4 to the masters or the authority figures in the church, but for the most part, this is written to those who were enslaved. Now, you might have heard about first century slavery. It was different than the slavery in our nation's history. Uh, It was similar in some ways to indentured servitude, but I don't want you to get the idea that because it wasn't as brutal as our own nation's histories form of slavery, that it was somehow easy. It wasn't. It was an abomination. It was something that the gospel message that Paul and Peter and James and John and the early church preach would eventually topple over. The ideology of the gospel would destroy the concept of slavery in that Roman empire in just a few hundred years' time. But as Paul encouraged or exhorted or instructed these slaves... What he said to them can stand as great and incredible lessons for us because, to put it succinctly, if it's true for them in their situation and condition, then in our situation, which is far better, uh, it is even more true than it would have been in the era that we are in. Uh, So what does the passage show us about how to do good work. Well, I wanna show you three things today, and the first one is really simple. The first way that this passage tells us how to do good work is by working for your master in heaven. Number one, by working for your master in heaven. This concept is scattered through the whole paragraph that we just read together, and I want you to look at your Bibles again in your hands so that you can see this. In verse 22, Paul starts by telling the bondservants to fear the Lord instead of their earthly masters. So they have these bosses right there in front of them that they can see, but they're to operate and live in the fear of God who they cannot see instead of the fear of these earthly masters. Now, the fear of God is a concept that means To revere God or to stand in awe of God, to be in reverence of God, to think of God as awesome and holy and majestic and if I could say it like this, to be terrified of life contrary to God. That's a little bit of the fear of the Lord. So Paul said to operate that way. Then in verse 23, he doubled down on that concept and told us that we should work for the Lord and not for men. And then in verse 24, he went on to say that we should see our work as a way that we are serving the Lord Christ. And then finally, in verse 1 of chapter 4, he talked to the authority figures in the congregation and said, hey, remember, you have a master in heaven that you will report to one day. Now, when we talked about or thought about why work matters. One of the reasons that we said that work matters is because it's a way for us to express Jesus's kingdom. You know, when Jesus came, he brought with him the kingdom of God. And when you believe in Jesus, you become part of that kingdom. Now, our king in heaven is asking us to image him here on earth. We are meant to be representatives of a faraway kingdom. We are subjects of King Jesus. So we thought about how our work is a way that we can live out Jesus's kingship and authority in our lives. And here in this passage, Paul codifies that message. Rather than seeing ourselves as doing our work for our earthly leaders, employers, and and authorities, we have to believe that we are doing our work for King Jesus some of you might hear all of this and you might think to yourself, you know, this sounds really nice. I think tomorrow morning I'm gonna go into work and I'm gonna let them know I'm out of here because I'm working for King Jesus. But of course, none of these bondservants or slaves had that option. They were stuck where they were. They weren't going to stop working for their earthly masters, but they were gonna start working through their earthly masters as a way to serve King Jesus. None of us, uh, as a result of this sermon, more than likely, will decide tomorrow to stop working for our earthly employers, but to work through them, to see an authority beyond them, behind them, above them, that we are serving, our master in heaven, King Jesus. Now, I want you to see what's happening here. You know, the Bible speaks of Jesus as the Redeemer, right? He comes to buy out that which was enslaved and broken and he redeems it. He takes things that were dead and makes them alive. He takes that which those that cannot see and gives them sight. He's the great redeemer. And here, Christ is being presented as the redeemer, not only of our spiritual being, our inner person, not only of our future with him, our eternal life, but our right here, right now, actual, tangible, physical lives, including our work. You see, when God first created man, as we thought about in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he put man in the garden to tend it and keep it. It was a beautiful way for him to enjoy God's creation, to live before God. His work was a way to worship. But when sin came into our planet, it marred our relationship with God and work lost its divine touch. Man no longer worked as a form of worship, but as a form of survival. But when Jesus comes into your life, he begins to redeem that original purpose so that now just as Adam worked in the garden as a way to enjoy and celebrate and be devoted unto God, so we can work with a semblance of that same spirit. Will our work be perfect like Adam's was before sin entered the world? No way. But can it be done for the name of Jesus? Can it be done in the name of Jesus? Yes. And I think this brings life back into even the most mundane or frustrating work experiences. Now one of the beautiful byproducts, and I wanna mention two, that comes from seeing work this way is that it helps us with a temptation that a lot of us feel in our work. Some of you might not feel this temptation, but many of us feel the temptation to get a big portion of our identity, our meaning, our purpose, who we are from what we do, from our work. And this concept here helps with that temptation that persists in our lives. I don't know if you remember a a few years ago, there was a truck commercial. There's lots of truck commercials that are like this, lots of commercials in general that are like this, but it was a truck commercial and it was real short. It was just a guy at a backyard barbecue and everybody's hanging out, having a good time, He's kind of a rugged looking guy. And somebody comes up to him and says, what do you do? You know, kind of just making small ch- small talk. The, the, the expected answer is, oh, I'm a dentist or I'm a lawyer or I'm a doctor or you know, whatever. But instead of thinking about his career, his mind began to flash to all of these great adventures that he had gone on with, of course, his truck. And so he's thinking about going camping and going fishing and going rock climbing and all of these different things that he's thinking about. The the implication is, I'm not my job, I am these interests. I am this lifestyle, a lifestyle which, conveniently, the truck company would sell you a little bit of if you would just buy their truck. Now, some of us, we might think, about that message and think, it sounds good. You know, I'm not what I do for my work. I'm so much more than that. Perhaps you're even in that custom when someone says, what do you do? You refuse to say what you do for work because you will not be defined by that. But what I want you to know is that your work is an important part of you. It's a gift that you, to some degree or another, give to the world, it's a mark that you make on society. And the man in the commercial simply found his identity wrapped up in his hobbies and personal interests, his lifestyle, good things that can never be God things. So instead of trying to find your identity in something other than work, you know, I'm adventure guy, like the guy in the commercial, or I'm workout guy, or I'm fashion guy, or I'm family guy, or I'm tech guy. Find your identity in Jesus. And as you find your identity in Jesus, understand that Jesus sends you to work. And as you're working, say, my identity is in him, and I want to do a good job for and in his name. So this first concept helps us with the temptation to find our identity in our work, but it also does another beautiful thing, and Paul mentioned it in verse 22 and 23. He said that this mentality, to be working for our master in heaven, it destroys eye service and people pleasing. Now, we all know what this is in the workplace. It's a total cancer in the workplace. This is a mentality that says, I work hard when I'm being watched. This is the attitude that says in a meeting when the leadership is present, I'm on my best behavior. That's when I'm nice to my coworkers. That's when I'm Mr. Tryhard. But once they turn their back, a different me comes out. This is a cancer to the workplace. And Paul tells us that this concept of Jesus is our master in heaven. It destroys that mentality, why? because your boss, your leadership is not going to be able to watch you, to monitor you at all times. But Jesus, our master in heaven, he is always with us, watching us, even inside of us, experiencing life with us. And he weighs the quality of our work. So let me encourage you, church, do not let life pass by doing subpar work. Jesus watches, Jesus sees. Don't be the people pleaser who only does what they can to give the impression that they're a good employee when they're not. Don't cheat your work by spending hours on your phone, doing personal tasks, kicking back while on the job. Don't come into work underslept and undermotivated Don't bring a bad attitude into the workplace. If Jesus is on the throne of your life, he's asking for more from you. But the second way that this passage shows us how to do good work is by telling us to work with the right heart. To have the right motivation, the right inner drive, the right heart. Uh, This is always God's way, by the way. You might remember when Samuel the prophet went to the house of Jesse to select the next king in Israel. Uh, Jesse had eight sons, and when Samuel saw the oldest son, Eliab, he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And you remember what God said? He didn't want Eliab, he wanted the eighth son, David. He said, the Lord does not see as man sees, for the Lord For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. This is the way of God. He sees our hearts. He sees our inner motivations while at work. And what Paul says in this passage, in verse 22 and 23, is that when we work, we should work with a sincerity of heart, and we should work heartily, from the heart. What does this mean? What do these statements from Paul mean? Well, to work with sincerity of heart, it means that we're to work with pure and undivided motives. In other words, our inner motivation should be for the overall good of our work and workplaces as we engage in our jobs. And to work heartily in whatever we do means that we put our whole heart into our endeavors. So whatever we do, whether it's work or school or volunteer, we're to give our best effort. To work heartily is to approach all forms of your work with enthusiasm. So this person that Paul is describing, this genuine worker, this enthusiastic worker, you could never imagine them merely punching the clock and going through the motions or doing the minimum. They believe that they're created in Christ Jesus for good works that God foreordained for them to walk in. And they believe that their workplace is part of the good works that Christ has destined for them to engage in. I realize that in saying to all of us that we should be genuinely motivated and uh, enthusiastic about our work, it could cause some of us to feel a little overwhelmed right now. Because some of you, you're thinking about your work, and you're saying to yourself, well, my work is not very easy to be enthusiastic about. My heart is not genuinely interested in what I'm doing right now. Now, the first thing that I said today, that we're to work for our master in heaven, that should help that a little bit, right? Because you're doing it for Jesus, so that should help the motivation of your heart. But I would also prescribe to you a truth from Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount. There, while talking about money or treasure, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now in the context, Jesus was talking about money. He said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth but treasures in heaven because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. But my encouragement based on this verse, especially if you're saying to yourself, I have a hard time being motivated in my work, enthusiastic for my work. My encouragement to you, based on this verse, is to begin going through the motions of showing genuine interest and enthusiasm for all your work with the hope and expectation that something will follow. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So my hope is, is that you go through the motions, the emotions will follow, that God will unlock that in your heart and life. And soon, your work will be a place of sincere joy and real passion. Now, this whole attitude that Paul holds out of sincerity of heart and enthusiasm in the workplace. This is actually really helpful counsel and instruction from God's word because if you think about it, this is one of the most significant keys to advancing in your work. Someone who is disinterested or disengaged in their work is usually not the first choice for promotion or advancement or new opportunities. You know, lots of leaders are not even really looking for people with the aptitude for a certain job because so often in various lines of work, the aptitude can be taught, learned, trained, and has to continually be relearned and retrained as the years go on and as technology develops. But what they're looking for is attitude, an attitude of enthusiasm and excitement and interest in the place of work, and it's hard to find. Without a sincere heart and genuine enthusiasm, advancement is hard to come by. But with it, doors begin to open. Now, at this point, some of you might be wondering how can I cultivate that kind of inner drive? I mean, am I just supposed to flip a switch tomorrow morning and just try to be different? I, I don't think it's gonna last very long, Nate. I don't think I'm going to be able to be all that different, maybe for five minutes or for 10 minutes or maybe the first hour of my workday, but I'll probably just lapse into all of my old patterns. So is there a way for the inner part of me to be changed and transformed? I'm so glad you asked. Because the Bible teaches us that as Christians, when you become a believer, you're born again, and the Spirit of God begins to reside inside of you. And that as you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but the fruit of the Spirit will begin to come out of your life. The Bible teaches that as you behold, as in a glass or a mirror, the glory of the Lord, as you spend time, in other words, with Jesus, you'll be transformed into the same image by the Spirit of the Lord. So think about this with me. What are some of the ways that God has prescribed for us to enjoy and to spend time in his presence? Well, one avenue or spiritual discipline is the spiritual discipline of solitude, being alone with God, getting away from it all to spend time in quiet before the Lord. And when you're in that place, your heart has a chance to catch up a chance to get perspective on your workplace, wisdom about your workplace, insight about your workplace that those who don't take the time to separate and be quiet before God will ever get to have. So solitude will make you a better worker than those who never take time to slow down and think problems through and become calm by the spirit. Or here's another one. The Lord tells us that we're to be a people who meditate upon the word of God that we're to study the Bible. When you meditate upon scripture, you are being reminded of truths that you might have forgotten or become dulled over time. And as you read the word or meditate upon the word, you're going to be repointed to larger truths. Like for instance, you have worker, coworkers that don't know Jesus and you're frustrated with their work, but to be reminded in scripture that they don't yet know the Lord. That changes and shapes to a degree the way that you interact with them. Scripture will make you a better worker than those who listen to fad voices or bad counsel or divisive commentators. Or think about the spiritual disciplines of fasting and generosity. I put those two together. They're very different from each other. But one thing they share in common is that they're hard and painful for us to do. They require a bit of self-sacrifice. You're denying yourself food or you are giving away your hard-earned money. But in those spiritual disciplines, what's happening to you? You're being trained by the spirit of God to do hard things, to even choose to do hard things. This will make you a better worker, a much better worker than those who regularly avoid pain at all costs. Because in the workplace, it's inevitable that you'll be asked to do things that hurt. And the person trained by disciplines like these can enter into them. On and on I could go thinking about church engagement or Christian fellowship. But let me give you one last one, Sabbath rest. And when you take a day each week to rest before God, to quiet yourself before God, to enjoy his creation and key relationships, what happens is you become energized for the week to come. I believe that Sabbath rest will make you a better worker than those who live for the weekend, go hard all weekend and use the work week as a time to recover from what they just did last weekend. So the spiritual disciplines, these ways of spending time in God's presence, they all help our heart, our internal person, which in turn helps our work. So this will help us work with the right heart. Okay, let me conclude with one last thing, though. The final way that this passage tells us how to do good work is by working for the ultimate reward. Working for the ultimate reward. Now to make this point, I have to impress on you how shocking what Paul said to these slaves was. As slaves, they did not expect to receive an inheritance in the households that they were in. There was no inheritance coming, that was not a right of theirs, it was not an expectation or even a hope of theirs. But here in talking to these bond servants, Paul said, that they needed to know that from the Lord, they would, verse 24, receive the inheritance as their reward. In other words, the gospel had so worked in the lives of these slaves, that the blood of Jesus had taken these people that were far off and brought them near into the very family of God. They had become, the Bible says, co-heirs with the Son of God, Jesus Christ so that whatever is coming to Christ was coming to them. They, and we, if we believe in Jesus, will receive the inheritance of Christ because his blood has brought us into that family. And Paul gave the flip side of this joyous truth with the sobering one. He said in verse 25 that the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. And since God doesn't show partiality, masters in verse one should make sure they treat their servants justly and fairly. The idea is that someday God will reward both his people and he will judge those who are not his people. All Christians, both those in authority and those who aren't, should work as if they will give an account of their lives to God. So we talked earlier about how we should see a, employer behind the employer, a boss behind the boss, a master behind the, ba- the master. We should also see a paycheck behind the paycheck. There's what we're tangibly paid and then there's the inheritance that we receive in Christ forever. And this word from Paul would have served as a word of comfort to beleaguered, beaten up and hopeless slaves in that Colossian church. One day they were told Christ would come and then they would get their long-awaited reward. I think that this ultimate and future inheritance or reward should help motivate us to reverse engineer our lives today. You know, last week, Pastor Manny taught for me, I'm very thankful for that, and he taught from Psalm 90. He talked to us about considering the brevity of our lives. And as Manny is prone to do, he had that illustration that he gave to all of us, didn't he? The little measuring tape that he gave to every single person on the way in. It had a 102 centimeters on it, and he said, let's use those hundred and two centimeters as a visual representation of the amount of time that we have here on earth. And since our lifespans are not generally 102 years, he said, if you're older than 80, you can disregard this, but if you're younger than 80, then cut it off at the 80 centimeter mark to symbolize how much time you have left and then take your birthday and cut that off. And a good friend of mine who is 78 years old, he complained to me afterwards. He said, all I had was two centimeters it's the most depressing message I ever heard in my life. He said, Well, I hope you have many more than two centimeters. But in thinking of those concepts, we should reverse engineer our lives from the end to the beginning. And one way to do, do this is with a stewardship mindset. In other words, whatever God has entrusted to you, whatever ability, or time or money or resources or skill or education, whatever you have, you've got to steward that well until the day Christ comes. If you're a leader, work hard to become a better leader. If you're a parent, work hard to become a better parent. If you're a student, work hard to become a better student. Whatever opportunity is in front of you today, be faithful with it until the day that Christ returns. There's a story in the Old Testament that I think gives us encouragement to live this way. It comes from the life of a man named Joseph. Joseph, as a teenager, was the youngest of a dozen brothers, and he had a dream, two of them, in fact, that one day he would be in a position of authority over all of his brothers and even his own parents. Now, God gave him these dreams when he was just a teenager, so it might explain what he was thinking when he decided to tell them all about these dreams. Not really advisable, but that's what he did and it conjured up all of their jealousies and their own insecurities until one day when they saw the favoritism that was being given from Jacob or Israel, Joseph's father to Joseph, they took Joseph and faked his death and sold him into foreign slavery. Suddenly this young man who'd received these promises from God. This is what I'm gonna do in your life, Joseph. He's enslaved in Egypt, far from home. What did Joseph do? Did he sulk? Did he complain? Did he wither? No, he trusted God. And he worked as hard as he could for his new master, a man named Potiphar. It came to the point that Potiphar, the Bible says, didn't even know how much money was in his own bank account. Joseph was in charge of all of it. He would just ask Joseph, can we afford it? What should we do? What's the next investment? The slave was running all of it. The household of Potiphar was blessed by God because of Joseph's presence and work. Eventually, Potiphar's wife brought a false accusation against Joseph and it unfairly brought him into prison. But what did he do when he was brought to prison? He did the same thing that he did when he was sold into slavery. He served, he worked hard. And eventually, the prisoner, he became the man in charge of the entire prison. (laughs) Can you imagine that today? Like, hey, this key is the main gate, here you go, you know, make sure nobody gets out, you know, kind of thing. That was Joseph. He was so faithful and so good at it that one day Pharaoh needed someone to interpret two vivid dreams that he'd received in his sleep. Joseph had interpreted some dreams for prisoners inside the prison and word came to Pharaoh about the presence of this man in an Egyptian prison So Joseph was invited into Pharaoh's courts. He, with the help of God, interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and even had wisdom from God as to how to financially and economically apply these dreams. And so Pharaoh promoted him to the second most powerful man in Egypt, which at that time in world history meant that he was the second most powerful man in the world. The slave who had become a prisoner, had become a man in a position of great power. And Joseph did this by being a faithful steward of whatever opportunity God put in front of him. I don't think that Joseph was happy about each situation that he found himself in. Oh, sweet, I get to be a slave now. I've always wanted to try that. And then now a prisoner, this is great. I have always heard terrible things about prison food. Let's see what it's really like. But instead of wallowing, he prayed and he went to work and he asked and expected God to use him despite his circumstances. And as he stewarded these opportunities, Joseph was looking forward to the reward of the inheritance that had been promised to him in those dreams. How do I know? How do I know that he never forgot the dreams? How do I know that he'd never disbelieved the dreams? Because When Pharaoh asked Joseph to interpret his two dreams, this is what Joseph said, I quote, he said, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. He's saying to Pharaoh, hey, the reason why you had two similar dreams is because that means it's sure, God will do it and he'll shortly bring it about. He didn't say, the doubling of dreams, you say? <laughs> oh, I know what that means. That means God's messing with you. That means that God will take his sweet, sweet time. I got a couple of dreams 17 years ago, and ever since then, it's been chaos and pandemonium in my life. No, he clung to the promise of God. He believed that God was still working in his life. And we have to have a similar faith if we're going to to work well. Believing that there is a judge who will come and settle all accounts. Take that which is imbalanced and off and wrong and make it right. That's King Jesus. One of my favorite stories from the life of Jesus is when he raised Lazarus back to life. Lazarus was very dead. He'd gone through his funeral already. His burial had already occurred. They'd wrapped grave clothes, linen strips around his body. So when Jesus commanded that they remove the stone from his tomb, Martha, Lazarus' sister, she objected. She said, Lord, he's been in the grave for four days and by now there is a great stench. He's like, I love my brother, but I really do not want to see my brother right now. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So he insisted, and out came Lazarus with grave clothes wrangling or unraveling from his body. What was dead is now alive. And my prayer is that this little passage that we thought about today could have a similar effect on your work. You might even think that your work is sucking the life out of you. You might think that there's no life in it. You might even say that your work stinks really bad. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the great redeemer and his life can infuse life into what you do every day. So instead of working for human authorities who will inevitably discourage and disappoint us, we understand that we are working for Jesus. Instead of working with impure motives and apathy, we can work with genuine zeal and enthusiasm. And instead of working only for material rewards today, we can work for the eternal inheritance that will come with Christ's return. I'm gonna invite Riley to come on up and close us in one last song, but as he comes, I want to ask one last question. What are we to do if we've failed this text? What are we to do if we're caught right now by this passage red-handed by a bad work ethic, by failing our workplaces? What are we to do? Well, part of what we're to do is look past ourselves to the bondservant or the slave who did everything that his master required. The Bible says that when Jesus came, he came as a slave, he came as a bondservant, and that he obeyed to the point of death, even death on the cross. He did this to intervene for us for a people who were in rebellion against God as their master. Jesus died and now lives so that we can be forgiven of any and all violations against God, the one who made us. So let us be a people who trust him, receive his forgiveness and grace, accept his grace and begin again allowing him from this point forward to make our workplace into a place that we are responding to his leadership and worshiping him for who he is. So would you pray with me and ask God to help you with this? Lord, we are asking and praying that you would take the work of our hands Bless it. Forgive us our sins in this area of life. Cleanse us. Make us new, including in the way that we work. Return we to you and commit our work into your hands. In Jesus' name.